If you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 10, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 31. And he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to them, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now tell me if you've had this conversation or this interaction before in your life. I'm sure you have. You're walking through the store with your kids, no matter what the age, and you walk by something. And instantly as you walk by this object, your kids' eyes light up. They light up and they see it and they take off and they're calling for you. Mom, Dad, come look at this. Come look at these Legos. Come look at these shoes, these clothes, whatever, this new video game. Come look at this. I need this. I have got to have this. My friends have this. I need this. I need to have this to go on. And you, you're it's a good parent. You're like, oh, that's really cool, but we're not here to get that today. You know, we'll, maybe some other time. But your kid is persistent, right? It's like his life literally depends on it. Like if you don't buy that Lego set, he will literally drop dead there in the store. No, Dad, Mom, I need this. I have to have it. And if you've been there in that conversation, in that situation, you know what you're about to say. You're about to turn into your mom or dad. And you're about to have the need versus want conversation. It's going to happen. You're going to sit there and begin to say, well, look, there's a difference between what you need and what you want. You know, you need water and you need food and you need shelter. 
this Lego set, those shoes, those are just things that you want. And you look at them and say, you say, do you understand? So do you need this Lego set? And do you, or do you want this Lego set? And then their eyes roll to the back of their heads and they say, I want it. We've all been in those situations. And what we're trying to do with our kids in that situation is trying to teach them what they really need. We want them to have their priorities in the right place to see there are things that you truly need and things that you want that aren't necessarily bad, but they're just desires. You don't need them. Now, it's not just kids who go through this. We as adults do this too, right? We see the new iPhone come out and we need the new iPhone. Like we don't need it later after, you know, it's shipped out there. Right? We want to be one of the first people to have it. We need the new house. We need the new car. And the dangerous thing for us as adults is that many of the times we have the money or the credit card at least to go and get that new thing that we think we need. And it's in those situations that we have to have conversations with ourselves to remind us what we need and what we want. Well, this morning in our text, Jesus is talking to a young man and he's talking to his disciples and he's trying to help them understand what they truly need. There's been a misunderstanding of what this man truly needs and Jesus is trying to correct that misunderstanding and trying to show him that what he really needs is Jesus. That above all else, what this man needs is Jesus. And I hope that's what you see this morning. Whether you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, or you've been following Jesus your whole life. You don't remember a day where you didn't know him. I want you to be reminded this morning that what you need is Jesus. So in our text this morning, we pick up here in the middle of Mark. And in this second half of Mark, Jesus is on his journey to Jerusalem, where ultimately he'll go and he'll die on a cross. And as we've been walking through, we've seen him interact with all kinds of people. We've seen him interact with the sick. We've seen him interact with Pharisees. The text right before this, when he interacts with children. And Jesus is using each of these interactions to teach his disciples and to teach us something. And that thing this morning, which I've already mentioned, is he's sitting out here to teach us what we truly need and that we truly need him. So as we walk through this text this morning, I've broken up the text into three sections. First is misunderstand, the misunderstanding the warning, and the promise. So first, the misunderstanding. So Jesus is beginning his journey there in verse 17. He's back going on his journey to Jerusalem, and then out of nowhere, this man comes running up to Jesus and falls to his knees before Jesus and asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this obviously would have stopped everyone in in their tracks. This man running to Jesus and falling at his knees. And it would have stopped them for multiple reasons. One of the major reasons is because this was something that Jewish men did not do. Jewish men did not run and they did not kneel down before other people. These two actions were only the actions of slaves. Only slaves ran and only slaves would bow down to someone. And so this man, who we'll find out later is wealthy, comes and runs to Jesus and falls down on his knees. So everybody stopped wondering what is going on in this moment. It's clear that this man is is showing some kind of deference to Jesus. And he's showing that Jesus, he respects Jesus and that there's something that Jesus has that he wants. Specifically, an answer to his question. 
Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now we're going to see that this man has some problems with his heart, but we need to commend him here first. First he recognizes there's something about Jesus. Something about Jesus, and so he comes and runs to him in humility. And then he asks the most important question that anybody can ask. How do I have eternal life? What must I do to have eternal life? Now what's crazy is that up until this point in the book of Mark and throughout the book of Mark, book of Mark no one else asks Jesus this question. His disciples don't ask him this. So in some way, this man is seeing why Jesus is here, why he's come, that he's the one who has the answer to how we have eternal life. So he asks this question, this most important question to Jesus. Now, if we're reading this story for the first time, what would you expect Jesus to do in response? You would expect him to like just nail the gospel right here, right? Like just go into the gospel and tell him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, right? I am the Savior. Repent of your sins. Trust in me, and you will have eternal life. That's what we expect. I mean, me and my wife, our whole family, has served in missionaries around the, served as missionaries around the world with Muslims, with, with secular people in Belgium. And this is like our dream scenario, right? Somebody, I'm walking down the street and somebody runs to me and says, how can I be saved? Right, this is what we all, this is what we all want evangelism to look like. Like if we're thinking about what's our dream evangelism situation, this is it. Your, chi- your child who's not been walking with Jesus runs to you and says, what do I do to be saved? Your friend you've been praying for for years to trust in Jesus comes. What must I do to you? A stranger comes and says, I know you're a Christian. How can I be saved? This is the dream scenario. And if me and you, for most of us, if we're mature followers of Jesus, we know how to explain the gospel to them. We know how we would answer that question. We go straight into the good news of Jesus. But that's not what Jesus does. He looks at Jesus. And the reason he does, he looks at the man, the reason he doesn't, answer him that way because he knows something's going on in his heart he knows there's something behind this question this man doesn't quite miss that understand there's a misunderstanding in this man's heart and the misunderstanding is about goodness what it means to be good and especially he has a misunderstanding about his own goodness this is why jesus answers the way he does The first hint of this misunderstanding is the fact that he calls Jesus good teacher. While it was common in this time for for Jews to address their rabbi, their teacher, with different titles, they would never use the word good. So it was common for them to say wise teacher or kind teacher or loving teacher. They would never say good teacher. Why? Why? Because they reserve the title for good, of good for God alone. The only person who was ever called good was God. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's trying to correct this man's understanding of what's good. Jesus is not saying here that he's not good or that he's not God. But he's in the process of redefining this man's understanding. He wants him to see that the measuring line for goodness is not himself are other people, it's God. So he wants this man to understand that when he wants to know what good is, he needs to look to God. 
He needs to look to him and him alone because he alone is good. See, when we make the measuring line for goodness other people in our lives, do you know what that makes us? Self-righteous. Because we can all look around at other people in our lives and in society and think, well, in comparison to them, I'm good. That's an easy thing to do. We can all do that. No matter what sin we're struggling around, we can look at other people and say, well, I'm better than them. I'm good. Or maybe another thing, rather than looking at other people, we can look inside of our own hearts. And we say, well, I'm, I'm really a, a good person. I'm good. I do what I can to love other people and be kind and to come to church. I'm a good person. We make ourselves the measuring line for goodness. And what Jesus wants to do here is he wants this man to see that goodness is not measured by other people's goodness or by his own measurement of what's good. It's only measured by looking at God and his goodness. Because what happens when we take our goodness and compare it to God's goodness? We see how sinful and broken we are. We see how bad we really are. So Jesus is trying to get this man to see that he's not good. Because if you think you're good, you don't see what you truly need. And what you truly need is a savior. Jesus then again keeps going in this conversation, trying to help this man redefine his understanding of goodness by going through the Ten Commandments. He goes to some of these commandments, especially the ones that are about interaction with other people trying to get this man to see, look, you haven't obeyed these. Trying to get him to see his need. So let's look at a couple of ones he he talks about. First he says, do not murder. Now, if we're examining our own hearts, like Jesus wants this man to examine his heart, we can think, oh, well, we're good with that one. Hopefully no murderers in the building this morning, right? Like that's one we should be able to pass over pretty easily. But... If you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember that he takes murder from being just something that you do physically, outwardly, to something that you do in your heart. And he says that anyone who has ever hated anyone or wanted to cause someone physical harm or something bad to happen to someone because of something they've done is guilty of having a heart of murder. And brother and sister, we've all been there. When someone cuts us off in traffic. When someone gets the job that we want. When someone's athletic ability is 5,000 times better than ours. We, in our hearts and in our minds, if we're honest, we sometimes want something bad to happen to them. We want them to fail. We've all been guilty of this. Next, Jesus goes and says, do not commit adultery. Again, this seems like it would be an easy one. This guy is probably a pretty good guy, so he's probably not cheated on his wife if he's married. And so it seems like an easy one to check off. But again, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going for the heart, and he says if you have lusted after someone, then you are guilty of committing adultery in your heart. Again, brother and sister, something we're all guilty of. We have all broken this command. We've all broken this command from God. And Jesus is trying to get this man to see that. Next, Jesus says, don't bear false witness. Okay, don't lie. Okay, that's an easy one. We've all done that. We've been there, right? There's no reason to dive into that. We've all, if we're honest, we've lied. 
The last one he says is honor your father and mother. That's we're all guilty of disrespecting our parents, of disobeying our parents, of talking bad about our parents. We've all done that. We've all dishonored our father and mother. There's none of us who are clean. And that's exactly what he, Jesus wants us to see and he wants this man to see. He wants him to see that he is not good, that he is sinful. Because again, when you see your brokenness, your sinfulness, you see your need for a savior. And that is a point that every person has to come to if they're going to be a follower of Jesus. We all have to see our sinfulness and brokenness if we're going to put our faith and trust in Jesus. So maybe you're, you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus. And you walked in these doors and you feel guilt because of your sin, of the things you've done. You feel shame because of your sin and your brokenness. Like it's so bad that even walking through the doors of the church are difficult. I want you to know, friend, that you're not at a bad place. You're actually at a place where God wants you to be. Because it's at that place, that lowness of seeing your brokenness and your sin, that God comes and meets you. If we're honest, if you're being honest like you are, that you're sinful and you're broken and you see that, that is a place where God can come and meet you and he can come and meet you with good news. He can come and meet you and tell you that he knows everything you've ever done and he loves you. And that he loves you so much that he sent Jesus, his son, to come and live a perfect life in your place. That life that you wish you could have lived, that you wanted to live, but you have failed so many times. Jesus lived it for you. And on top of that, Jesus, even though he lived this perfect life, went to the cross and died for you and took the punishment that you deserve. He took the punishment that you deserve on the cross so that you don't have to. Then he rose from the dead, securing for you new life now. Like you can be free of that guilt and shame now. The bondage of sin, you can be free of that now there's new life now and there's new life forever with him so friend if you're here and you feel your sin and shame and guilt don't run and hide from that run and run to Jesus because he will make you whole you're at a place where God will come and meet you and we expect that that's what's going to happen right with this young man in our text is that after talking to Jesus, he's going to see his need and come and follow Jesus. That's not what he does. He looks at Jesus and he says, Teacher, I have kept these from my youth. I have kept all these commands. He is holding on to his goodness. He is holding on to his ability to be good enough for God. His standard of goodness has not changed. His measuring line for what is good is not God. It's himself or other people. And maybe you're here this morning and, and this, is, this is you. That if someone wants to ask you why you should go to heaven or, or why you'll, you know that you'll be in heaven, that you would first thing you would go to would be things that you've done. You're relying on your goodness how you come to church, how you give to church, how you volunteer in the community, how you try to, to be kind and loving to others. 
want you to know, brother and sister, friend, it's not good enough. We have to change our measuring line for what's good from what other people's, what other people, from other people or from ourselves to God. But Jesus is not done with this man. He's going to keep going for this man's heart. And Jesus looks at him. He looks at him and he, what he doesn't do is he doesn't chew the guy out. Which is what most of us would want to do. When they look, somebody looked at you and said, yeah, I've obeyed all those commands. I've done all that. But you want to look at him and say, no, you haven't. You're crazy. What are you talking about? First of all, this is Jesus. He sees his heart. Jesus knows what's going on, but that's not how Jesus responds to him. Jesus looks at him, and he loved him. Circle that in your Bible. If you circle things in your Bible, circle that right there. Loved him. This is the only time in the book of Mark where it says that Jesus loves someone. The only time in this whole book, gospel, Jesus says he loves someone is right here. So he looks at this man and his obstinance. And he loves him. In fact, some commentator says that this pointing of love to him means that Jesus got down and gave him a hug. That he got down on his knees and gave this man a hug. Jesus loves him. And maybe the reason he hugs him, if he did that, is because he knows what he's about to ask him is going to be too much for him. Jesus makes one of the, the, the most shocking requests in the whole Bible in this next verse. He looks at him and he says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He tells him, you need to go sell everything and come follow me. You want eternal life? Sell everything, come follow me. Lay everything down, all that you have. Sell it, give it to the poor and come with me. Now Jesus is not asking this man to do that because he thinks that if some, somehow if he does do this that it will make him good enough. That it will make him good enough again to have this eternal life. No, Jesus knows that this man, what he, this man thinks that he needs for security and life and peace and joy and hope is his wealth. And he knows, Jesus knows as long as he is holding on to his wealth with closed fists, thinking that this is what he needs more than anything else, he will never grab a hold of Jesus, what he truly needs. And so he tells the man, you need to lay these things down. See, brothers and sisters, the cost, there's a cost to following Jesus. So often when people come and want to hear, and hear the gospel, we lead them straight into a prayer that they say, and we don't ever explain to them the cost of following Jesus. See, the cost of following Jesus, the call to follow Jesus is a call to come and lay everything down at his feet and say, all this is yours, Jesus. I want to do whatever you want me to do, and I want to go wherever you want me to go. Because what you're doing in that moment, what you're doing is you're saying, Jesus, I understand that what I need more than anything else in the world is you, Jesus. You're laying those things down and saying, Jesus, if all this goes away, I know I have what I need. And it's you. And that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what it looks like to trust in Jesus. It's to lay everything at his feet and say, I need you. Brothers and sisters, the eternal life that this man is looking for is standing right in front of him. He's standing right in front of him. And all that this man has to do is to grab a hold of it. But his hands are full of his stuff. 
His hands are full of his stuff and Jesus is asking him to open his hands. The only way that this man can hold on to Jesus is if he lets his money and his wealth fall through his fingers so that he can grab a hold of Jesus. The same is true for us. Maybe it's not wealth that we hold on to. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's people's acceptance. Maybe it's the appearance of what other people think about you. Maybe it's a habit that you don't want to quit, a relationship you don't want to give up. Maybe it's handing over control of your life. Maybe it's your sexual freedom. You know that if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to let go of those things. You're holding on to them because you don't want to. Friend, Jesus is calling you to let it go, to let go of those things. And he's calling you to do that because he loves you. Just like he loves this man. He's asking this man this great request, come to do this great act. Not because he wants to punish the man, not because he wants this man's life to be miserable, but because he loves him. And Jesus knows that the only way that this man will find true security, true hope, true peace, true love, is if he lets go of those things and grabs a hold of what he really needs, which is Jesus. And the same is true for us. Same is true as that for us. So often, we're like this man. We don't believe it. We don't believe what Jesus is saying. We don't believe that what he has is better. We don't believe he's what we truly need. Like this man, we walk away. This man looks at Jesus the man who has eternal life for him. The text says he walks away disheartened and sorrowful. The only times in the Bible that someone walks away from Jesus sad. Because he knows what he needs to do. He knows that he needs to lay his trust on Jesus and lay those things at his feet. But he just can't because he's holding on to those things so tightly. So this morning, that's you. God is telling, asking you to open up your hands and grab a hold of what you truly need. Him. Jesus. So in this first section, Jesus is correcting that misunderstanding of what is good and what this man truly needs. What is good. So this man will see what he truly needs. So we continue going through the text. Jesus goes to a warning. Verses 23 to 27. This man walks away And Jesus looks over to his disciples, probably wondering if they're about to walk away too. And he sees them, he looks at them, he gives them a warning. His warning is about how difficult it is for someone who has wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, how difficult it is for someone who's wealthy to be saved. Jesus goes so far as to give this illustration, this famous illustration about a camel and and the eye of a needle. And he says, you know, look at how difficult it is He's for a, let me read it rather than try to quote it to you. He says to them, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, my friends, I don't know if you've seen a camel or seen the eye of a needle, but it would have to get real messy in order to make that happen, right? It's not going to happen. It's an impossibility. Jesus is trying to show us like this 
is extremely difficult, if not impossible, for someone who is wealthy to be saved. Now, look at, his, look at the reaction of the disciples to this. They're shocked. They're amazed. In verse 24, it says they were amazed. And then after the illustration, it says that they were exceedingly astonished at this comment that Jesus has made. Again, Jesus first makes this comment, tells this command for this man to go sell everything. And now he's saying people who are wealthy can't be saved. These disciples are like, what is going on? This is so much more difficult than I thought it was going to be to follow this man. They're shocked because, one of the reasons they're shocked is because in Jewish culture, in Jewish life, the understanding was that people who are rich are blessed by God. That wealth equals blessing from God. And now before we just dismiss that as something, as something that we, is just crazy, it's wrong, if you read through the book of Proverbs, what you see is that wise decision is often rewarded with wealth. Now, there can be a correlation there between living wisely and there being a blessing of God of wealth. So it's not that Jesus is saying here that nobody who's wealthy can go to heaven. He's trying to make a point that wealth is of great danger, is dangerous for spiritual people. Wealth is dangerous for our spiritual life. Something that we all need to recognize is that our wealth, the things that we have, can pose a serious threat to us spiritually. A pastor in New York City for 30 years, Tim Keller, is looking at some of the most wealthy people in the world in his city, and he's seen how this can happen. And he says, here are a couple ways that he says that, spiritual, that wealth comes such a spiritual danger. He says, first, it can make you an addict. The more money you have, the less you feel like you have, and the more you need. Right? It makes sense. You start making a good amount of money, and so then what do you go do? You buy a nicer house, you buy a nicer car, you go on better vacations. So as the amount of money you get paid goes up, your cost of living goes up, and then what happens? You realize, I'm just paying the bills again. And so what do you need? More money. And this pattern just continues throughout your life, where you're this constant need for the next hit of money. So that in that money, that money begins to control you. It becomes the thing that you need to survive and this leads to work you becoming a workaholic it leads to being controlling over money it leads you to be furious when things don't go your way with money or you don't get what you deserve you think you deserve it blinds us to our need for jesus second money gives us a false sense of security we look at our bank we look at our bank accounts and we can feel like i'm okay i can handle what's going to happen i'm safe and secure I have what I need because I have money in my bank account. Again, it blinds us to our need for Jesus. Because friends, when the cancer diagnosis comes, the money doesn't matter. When your son says he doesn't want to talk to you anymore, the money doesn't matter. When death comes for you or someone you love, or for someone you love, the money doesn't matter. It doesn't provide the security it promises. Only Jesus does. And lastly, it, makes you, it can make you proud. Again, it can make you think that you don't need Jesus, that I'm good enough, that I can have what I need because my worth ec, my work, I have a great worth ec, work ethic. I'm smart. I'm desirable. All these things blind us to our need. 
So Jesus is saying spiritual, like, that wealth is seriously dangerous to our spiritual lives, and we have to recognize that. We have to recognize if you don't think you're wealthy, compared to most of the world, we are extremely wealthy. If you know where your next meal is coming, if you have a house to, have to go live in, a bed to sleep in, then you are wealthy. So it is a danger for us, no matter how much money you have. So we all have to guard our hearts. But maybe for you, it's not wealth where you're finding your security. Maybe it's not wealth that makes you forget your need for Jesus. Maybe it's like, I don't need to be rich, but I need to be comfortable. Maybe the thing that you have to hold on to is comfort. And so anytime something that brings you out of your comfort zone or makes you uncomfortable, you begin to lose your mind and get angry and upset about it, right? Because you want to do anything you can to hold on to that comfort. And when that comfort becomes what you need, that comfort also controls your obedience to Jesus because you're not going to be willing to be obedient to Jesus when it's things that make you feel uncomfortable. And so it's just as dangerous to our spiritual life. For me, personally, it's control. I want to be in control of things. I want to make what I want to make happen in all of my life. And so I think everything will be good if I'm in control. And if I was just in charge, if my kids would just do what I tell them to do, everything would be great. But you know what happens to me? As soon as that control is attacked, I get angry and I become even more domineering. And so it is a spiritual danger for me, control. So Jesus really here speaking specifically to wealth, but it's not only about wealth. It can be spread to numerous things. These things, anything that consumes us and becomes what we think we truly need is a spiritual danger to us. And so with this in mind, the disciples look to Jesus and they say, well, look to Jesus and say, who can, then who can be saved? If people who, like this man who appear to be good, if people who are wealthy, can't be saved, then who can be saved? What does this look like? How are we saved? They finally asked the question they should have been asking all along. And Jesus looks at them and says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. He says, your salvation, your forgiveness of sins, your relationship being made new with God, these are things that you cannot do. That you cannot do. There's nothing you can add to this. There's nothing that God's like, I would save you, but I need this from you. It is completely dependent upon God. From beginning to end, salvation is a work of God. And Jesus wants them to see that. Because if we know that and we understand that, what becomes the thing we need most? God. We need that. And that's such good news for us today. That our salvation is not dependent upon our ability to be good. Our ability to be successful is completely and utterly dependent upon God. And it's also good news for the people that we love who are not followers of Jesus. Because there's no one's heart who's too hard for God. There's no one's heart who's too far away. Our children's salvation, whether they're small or they're old, that is at God's feet. That is God's job to save them. I don't have to save my children. I'm called to be obedient and love them and share the good news of the gospel with them. But it's on God's feet. And I'm so glad it is. Because I mess up so much. So this work of salvation was impossible with us, but not with God. So we need God. 
And the good news is, is that God, of course, has made a way for us to know him through Jesus. Jesus ends his discussion here with a promise. He ends with good news. Peter says to him, well, Jesus, we've left everything. We're here. We've followed you. We've done what you asked this guy to do. What about us? Have we done enough? Have we trusted in you? And Jesus looks, looks at them, looks at Peter. And I can imagine he's smiling. And he says, he gives them a promise. I promise that if you have let go of those things that you think you need and you've grabbed a hold of me as the thing that you need more than anything else, you've trusted in me, then you will receive blessing now and forever. You will receive a hundred times what you, hundredfold what you think you have lost and even more now and forever. And I think as he's explaining this text, he explains all these different relationships that they've left. So I think the main blessing that Jesus is talking about here is the blessing that we receive, we trust in him and become a part of the body of Christ. And all those things that we felt like we'd lost, we received them and more as we gather together as the church. This is where God pours his blessing out on us. When we're with brothers and sisters in Christ here together, living life together, walking through life together, walking through the good times and the bad things. This is where God pours out his blessings on us, is here. So God promises there'll be blessings now, but notice there in those verses, what he says in the midst of those things that he says you'll get a hundred times a hundredfold, he says, with persecutions. There's all these great things, and then it's with persecutions. Jesus does not promise us that if we trust in him that life will be easy. He doesn't promise us that things will go well for us, that we'll get the things that we think, that his blessing, that his hundredfold blessing will look like we want it to look. As we follow Jesus, we will face hardship. We will face hurt, struggle, suffering. We will face hard things. I mean, just look at the guys he's talking to here, right? He's talking to his disciples. Okay, let's get rid of one. He to betray Jesus. Okay, the uh, ten of the other ones literally died because they went and preached the gospel. They were murdered because they told other people about Jesus. Now, we might. Well, let me go. Well, keep going. And the other one was tortured and thrown in jail and then thrown on an island to die. John. So we look at their lives and we're like, well, where's the hundredfold at, brothers and sisters? It's us. We're the hundredfold. It's because of their obedience to follow Jesus and share the gospel and make him big that we're here today. That's why we're here. So they didn't necessarily see their hundredfold. They were obedient to preach the gospel and face suffering and hardship. But God blessed their faithfulness. And that's why we're here. So we might not see our blessings today, but if we're faithful to follow him, he will use our weak lives for his glory now and then forever. Jesus ends this conversation by going back to eternal life. The thing the rich young man was looking for, eternal life, is found in recognizing your need for Jesus and laying down your life at his feet. We recognize our need for Jesus and lay everything down. There's reward and blessing now and forever.
a promise that you can hold on to, even when life is hard, even when you don't see God's reward and God's blessing, you remind yourself that he promised it to you. And God is good, so God doesn't lie. So you can hold on to that. Hold on to that truth, that promise. So as we conclude this morning, I have a question. What's keeping you from seeing your need for Jesus this morning? If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, if someone wants to ask you, why should you have eternal life? If you instantly, like I said earlier, go to good things that you're doing, are you being here, are you giving whatever it is, if it goes to things that you're doing that makes you good, then brother and sister, then you are friend, you are in spiritual danger. Because you need to change your measuring line for what's good. You need to look to God to see what's good. You need to turn, repent, turn from your good works and turn to your Savior who you truly need. If you're here this morning and you see your brokenness and your sin and you feel like, like, like you feel that, like it's hard to walk in here, I want you to know God wants to meet you where you're at. Don't run away from him, run to him. He has open arms for you because you're right where he wants you to be. He's calling you to do the same thing, to turn from your sins and to turn to him, the Savior who will forgive you and give you new life if you trust in him. If you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus for 50 years or for two weeks. As we go through this life, it's very easy for us to go and at one point let go of those things to say we're following Jesus. It's really easy for us to go back and pick those things back up. We can pick those things back up and think, I need these things. Yes, I have Jesus, I need Jesus, but I also need these things. But I also need these things. I want you to ask you this morning to examine your heart. Do you have those things? If someone wants to say, is your greatest need Jesus? Is that true of you? Are there things in your life where you think, I can't live without that. I have to have that. I can't imagine life going on without that. If there are those things, that means that your greatest need is not Jesus. So what I want you to do is to let those things go. Lay them down at Jesus' feet. Say, Jesus, one time I knew my need for you, but I have fallen back. But I'm coming back here again. And I need you. And today's the perfect opportunity to do that. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. So we're reminded of Jesus' death. And what he's done for us. And that we truly need him this morning. So if you're a believer, as you take the Lord's Supper, remind yourself of that. And remind yourself of this is what I truly need. Is the body and blood of Jesus. If you need someone to talk to, to pray for, there will be elders here at the front this morning. And I encourage you to come. Pray with them. Pray with them. Ask questions. Lay those things down at Jesus' feet. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that even while we were in our sins, while we were in our self-righteousness, while we were in our rebellion against you, you came and made a way for us to be made right with you. So brother, friend, God, as, as our brothers and sisters and friends here gathered this morning, I pray that we would all see that what we truly need more than anything else is Jesus. 
Say we truly need is Jesus, Lord. And anything else that we're holding on to, give us the strength to let it go of it. To let go of what we're holding on to so that we can hold on to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.